I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Over the last 20 years since I started my foundation work, I spent a lot of time in Africa. I've learned a lot about how different tribes in different regions live and work and relate to each other. One of the most impressive examples of that is how people in the central highlands of Africa greet each other. When they pass each other, instead of saying, good morning, hello, how are you, and replying, I'm fine, the reply translated into English is, I see you. Just think about what that means for a minute. What they're really saying is, I acknowledge your presence your humanity, you matter to me. It's a very moving, empowering practice. So why am I telling you this? Because in today's episode, I'm joined by someone who's dedicated his life to forcing people to see other people, to grapple with the fact that all our lives are interconnected and that what happens to one person anywhere affects all of us everywhere. Bernard-Henri Lévy, is a French philosopher, filmmaker, activist, and author of more than 45 books. His latest project, a documentary and accompanying book titled The Will to See, highlights the human suffering created by conflicts in places like Nigeria, Somalia, Bangladesh, Libya, and Afghanistan. Most relevant today, he spent time on the front lines of eastern Ukraine, where people have been dealing with the Russian occupation since 2014. While this conversation was taped before the unjustified and totally unprovoked full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia, 
The insights he shares about the bravery of the Ukrainian people and the importance of their struggle for freedom and against oppression rings even truer today. I hope you'll find this talk as illuminating as I did. Bernard, thanks for joining me today. Thanks to you, Mr. President. It's a great um, honor for me to join. Well, I've been a fan of your work for a long time, but for those listening who may not know you, can you take just a couple of minutes to tell us about yourself and how did you get in to this work, going all over the world to see the unseen? You know, Mr. President, I was, um, I was trained and shaped as a philosopher, and I decided to practice a philosophy, opening the windows, opening the doors, and going and stepping out as much as possible outside. But at the beginning, there is philosophy. And when I was a young man, there was a great German philosopher who was very influential. He was dead, of course, called Edmund Husserl. Edmund Husserl had a piece of work composed of two big um, blocks. One block was pure philosophy, nearly mathematical logic. And the other world, the other piece, the other block was what he called phenomenology, which means going to the real things, going to fight with the things, going to confront the the anger of the world. So on one side, pure philosophy. On the other side, the anger of the world. All my life, since I was a teenager, I decided to combine the two. To have a real academic, solid, consistent body of philosophy on one side, and to apply this body of philosophy to make it work, to plug it in the world and to try to intervene in the world. In one sentence, I am this very strange animal uh, which exists a lot in France, a little less in America, which is a committed intellectual, a public intellectual. I try to do both. Did you always know you wanted to do this. You speak very eloquently in The Will to See about the influence of your father's life. Talk a little bit about that, because I think in the modern world, people spend so much time on the internet with their devices. They have more information than ever before, but I sometimes think they understand it less. Talk a little about your the example of your father and what he did in the resistance and for the cause of freedom against Franco and the Spanish Civil War. My father was my my hero, and I think he was a true hero, beyond what I think myself. You are right, Mr. President, when he was not quite 18 years old, he engaged himself in the International Brigade in Spain, serving the Republican government against the fascism. He was one of those, not men, boys, 17 years old, 18 years old, you are a boy, you are a teenager, who thought that fascism was a danger for the world. He felt that immediately. 
that there was a very dark cloud in the sky of the whole Europe, that this cloud was going to, to burst and that it had to be fought. So he did that. Very young international brigade in Spain. Then, a few years after, he was one of the heroes of the Free French Army. It started with the Army of Africa. He was in the Battle of Tunisia, Libya, Italy. This, for me, was crucial because my father gave me, transmitted me the idea that it's better to take the risk of dying standing than living on the knees. It's better to have a great life than to have a coward life. In your new film and book, The Will to See, you highlight some specific forgotten wars. How did you choose them, and what are the common threads you notice that link the situations in all these different countries? The principle of the choice was very simple. Forgotten. Forgotten wars. I remember, by the way, 20 years ago, before the will to see, I made the first series of reportage of the same sort. I did that for Le Monde, the French daily newspaper Le Monde. And I remember the team of Le Monde coming to me and offering me to hire me as a reporter. I said, come on, I'm a philosopher, I'm a writer. Why should I be a reporter? No, except, except, I said, if you send me to places where you never send anybody, except if you send me to places which are forgotten. The people of Le Monde, like New York Times, Le Monde, you know, it is the the cream of the cream. They told me, Mr. Levy, this does not exist. Every war is covered by us. There is no forgotten wars. Everything is uh, on the map. I said, okay, let's check. Give me two days and I will come back with a series of wars, which, number one, last since at least 10 years. Number two, count tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dead in a short time, and number three, to which you never devoted a big article. Done deal. Two days after I came with this list of forgotten wars, which I covered for Le Monde. For this book, The Will to See, I did the same. I went to a series of magazines and newspapers, and I said, I want to go to places to which you did not devote any reportage since 10 years. Example, Mogadishu in Somalia. Example, the trenches in Ukraine, the front line between the Russians today and the Ukrainian army. Talk a little about Ukraine. Where are we now? What do you think is going to happen? My feeling, but it's a bet. I might be wrong tonight. My feeling is that President Putin would do a huge mistake if he decided to invade uh, Ukraine. It will be a huge mistake for two reasons. I know the spot. I spent some time there. I had the honor to be embedded 
among the special units of the Ukrainian army. Number one, they are good. Number two, they are patriots. They are ready to defend their land. And number three, detail, but which is not just a detail, I'm not sure that the Russian soldiers, the basic Russian soldiers, will shoot so easily their cousins, their, their, uh, f their family cousins of Ukraine. It would be a real mess if the general-in-chief of the Putin's army give the order to shoot. It will not be like Chechenia, it will not, which was a big crime. It will be a difficult story. What do you think he wants? Does he want a puppet government in Ukraine? Does he? I, I agree with you. The Ukrainians are tough and strong, and they're proud of their country, and they don't want to give it up. But he has had more or less favorable governments there. Is that what he wants? He wants that first, yes, a puppet government as much as he can, as he had with Yanukovych before Poroshenko. And he wants to create a mess among us. The biggest the mess, the best for him. Divisions between uh, Germany and France, divisions between America and Europe, mess between uh, Baltic countries who are very hawkish and uh, Hungary who is very sweet because Mr. Orban has a good personal relationship with Mr. Putin because he shares some parts of his ideology, whatever. But the aim for me The target of Putin is to inflict us what he thinks we inflicted him at the time of the collapse of Soviet Union. Ah, Mr. Americans, Mr. French, Mr. Europeans, you inflicted me an humiliation by destroying my empire in 1989. I will inflict you the reverse by destroying as much as I can your dear free world, European continent, and so on. This is the target. Revenge. Revenge. About, uh, don't forget, you know that better than anyone, Mr. President, that for him, the collapse of Soviet Union is the biggest catastrophe of the 20th century. And he really wants to make us pay for that. This is the target, according to me. Of course, the truth is uh, quite different. That basically, it rotted from the inside out, the Soviet Union, and the rest of the world just stayed strong and preferred freedom to domination. But I remember when I became president, Russia was in terrible trouble, and uh, they couldn't even afford to bring their troops home from the Baltics. They had no place to house them. They had no food to feed them. They had nothing. And the first thing that I did as president was to meet with President Yeltsin in Canada and organize a $24 billion relief operation for them, which was real money back then. That was, you know, 29 years ago. And they were able to bring their soldiers home and to treat them with dignity. 
And I did everything I could to help Yeltsin succeed. And uh, even in Bosnia, we let them be part of the peacekeeping mission. Even though it was a difficult thing politically, Yeltsin trusted me and we worked together and we worked it out. And I think what Putin thought was that because of his energy resources, when he got rich again, he could exercise more muscle. And I always thought that the great decision Russia had to make after the collapse of the Soviet Union was not how to get revenge, but how to define greatness in the 21st century. And Putin has chosen, in effect, a 19th century czarist model of greatness. He can prey on the fact that his country was invaded uh, by Napoleon and Hitler, and there's still a sense of distrust of the outsiders. And he can use all these new levers, the unconventional warfare, if you will, their enormous talents in cyber technology and their ability to sow mischief all the way to the American election. And that's how he defines greatness. He could have made a very different decision. He could have decided to become the, in effect, second Silicon Valley, the internet capital of half the world. And he decided not to. He decided the iron hand was better. But I think it was a mistake. You are right. And here comes what we could call the human factor. Putin is Putin. He is not a cynical man. He believes. He has some beliefs. He has a doctrine. For example, he believes in Eurasia. Eurasia, Eurasia. Uh, He believes in an uh, alternative pattern of society against democracy. He believes in illiberal regimes. He hates what America or Europe embodies. He has a real doctrine. I don't know if we should qualify it a new fascism. I don't know if it is a revival of just of uh, Tsarist Russia, maybe it is that, plus a bit of Stalinism, plus a bit of... I don't know. But there is a doctrine. And this doctrine is really opposite to ours. It is a real opposition of visions of the world. And this makes so crucial that we... We stand by our words, we, the West, stand by our values, defend them with wisdom, of course, without aggressivity, without being hawkish. But if we don't stand by our own values, we will be strongly defeated because he has a double force of an army and of a doctrine. That brings me to Bosnia. Let's talk about that a little bit. As you know well, Bosnia was the first uh, place where NATO approved out-of-area operations. The Germans voted for it even before it was legal for them to send any forces outside Germany. And um, I was trying from 1993 to get our allies involved because I didn't think America could do this alone because Bosnia had to be a part of Europe. And uh, what broke, largely because of France, I might add, What broke the European paralysis was Srebrenica. The slaughter in Srebrenica led the French to believe that uh, their fate that they could somehow reason with or do business with Milosevic and the Serbians was misplaced. 
And so we were able in only with, you know, a few days, maybe four or five days of bombing to start the peace talks. And we were able to stop the slaughter and to preserve a kind of rough order, which has existed to the present day. But we did not have, at the time of what we did in Dayton, Ohio, the ability to fashion an agreement which would prevent the Serbs from vetoing the national government of Bosnia from doing anything to make it a real nation and to put it on the path to prosperity. So the good news is we stopped the killing. The bad news is as long as the Republic of Srpska, which is part of Bosnia, is governed by someone who, in effect, is an anti-unity, which pleases Putin and no one else, we're stuck. What what should happen in Bosnia? How, what's your take on this? I remember the night you decided to launch the bombing on the hills, which were bombing Sarajevo. I was with Ambassador Harriman, General Wellesley Clark, and uh, Ambassador Holbrook. The three of them, plus me, plus the President Izetbegovic, in the dining room of Ambassador Harriman. It was more than a relief. It was a, a full joy. It was a blessing. I remember having blessed you for having taken, after two years, this decision. This day, you made a lot for the Bosnian people, for their cause, the cause of the Bosnian people, and for the cause of values and truth. It is a date. For my generation, this night is a real date, number one. Number two, what is, what is true is that the Dayton agreements were not good. He hesitated till the last minute to sign or not. He was... Uh, he has a prospect. He was a visionary. He knew that this agreement will postpone the problems instead of solving them really. And this is what we see. Today, Dodic, the chief of the Republika Srpska, is again playing with fire. What I believe, I told that to my president recently, we are still in a quiet situation. The fire is not yet there. We should intervene now. We should uh, deal a step ahead in the future entry of Bosnia in Europe in exchange of a remolding of the institution of the two entities, Croat and uh, Muslim on one side, Orthodox on the other, Serbian on the other one. We should not let it as it is. I hope that your successors in America and in France will take this problem now, before it is too late, and before we have to extinguish a real fire. It has to be done. If not, the war could resume, could come back. I agree with that. And, and uh, I was back there... 2015, I went back to the 20th anniversary of Srebrenica, and it was very moving. And the then president of Serbia came, and he was young, like the 
then mayor of the community, uh, who was the only survivor of the massacre in Srebrenica in his family and in his class, only male survivor in his high school class 20 years earlier. And these two young men offered such promise, but they took a totally different direction. And I remember walking through the crowd that day. All the older people were really glad to see me, and they were grateful that I'd stopped the slaughter. All the younger people were angry because they took it for granted that they weren't going to be shot, but they had no hope because nothing good was happening. And then the Serbs went back to their hardline direction, and we're paying for it now. It's something that has to be watched, and the United States should be supportive, but the Europeans are going to have to take a lot of initiative here because they're part of Europe. Absolutely. If anybody had told me when we did all this more than 20 years ago that by the 2020 and now 2022 that Kosovo would have a more enduring government and greater prospects at the future than Bosnia— I wouldn't have believed it then. Me too. And they're in a precarious position geographically, of course, but it's worth remembering that the aftermath of conflict will determine whether we lay the seeds of another one or give people a chance to live a normal future. Absolutely. And I'm very worried about it. And the further away you get from the scene of a place like that, the more the politicians can turn away from it. And you just hear the barking dogs. And if you're an American politician today, all the barking dogs are at home. I don't think they're thinking about it very much, but it's a real problem. We'll be right back. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. I sense from your reading that you have a great affinity for the non-governmental organizations that try to keep humanity alive in all these difficult circumstances. And uh, the first person who exposed me to the potential power of NGOs in the United States and around the world was Hillary, because her first job out of law school was working for what became the Children's Defense Fund. And she began to, when she was in the White House and she would take trips for me, she would, every time she went to a country, she would meet with the main NGO leaders along with the government officials. And she got me to do the same thing, which often upset the leaders, you know, who saw NGOs as a threat. But they're a threat, by and large, only because they highlight forgotten people and the real condition of human beings instead of the stated superficial positions of politicians. So what's your feeling now about the NGO movement? I'm very worried about Afghanistan, as I'm sure you are. Afghanistan, you are right. It is a, it is a heartbreaking and it is a shame, the situation. It is heartbreaking because in reality, in Afghanistan, we did succeed. We did not fail. We did succeed. In which sense? Under the umbrella of American forces, women got liberated, dared to go in the streets with a naked face. Under the umbrella of American forces, a free press began to take birth. And some NGO, Afghan NGOs, civil society began to take shape also. So it is false to say that we failed. You know, this is the motto, we fail. No, we did not fail. Those who maintain, who keep the candle lightened are the NGOs, the humanitarian movements who, at big risk, risk of their lives, working in so dangerous situations, are keeping the hope alive. Thanks God, we still have a few NGOs in Afghanistan trying to do their work. Generally speaking, I share absolutely your point of view. I am an old traveler now, like Hillary. I went in so many places in my life. I will tell you, I understood very early that the true ambassadors of France maybe of America, often, not always, because we have also some great ambassadors, but often the true ambassadors were the NGOs. They are the ones who have 
the best contact with population. They are the ones who are the most closely embedded in the in the real concrete situation. They have a lot of uh, information about this situation. When you want to know something today, when you arrive in, a, in Burundi or even in Mogadishu or in Afghanistan, you have to go to the NGO. They, they wave the flag of America and of Europe. They have the data and they help. They are our true ambassadors and they are brave. They are exactly like the journalists, the reporters. They risk a lot by doing their job. So it is the birth of the NGOs, maybe after the war in Biafra in the 60s, might be one of the real progresses one of the great inventions of the modern times. One of the things that bothered me about uh, the whole thing is we never really explained to the American people what was going on in Afghanistan. And there were many people, including many who were upset about the withdrawal, who wanted to end the conflict in 2010. They thought we could not make over the whole country. And I think what we did was good because, as you pointed out, we hadn't been at war in Afghanistan in nearly a decade. So what would you do now? What do you think should be done now in Afghanistan? I think we should um, prevent the ordinary people from uh, dying by hunger. So help should be provided through NGOs through UN and NGO, certainly not one dollar directly in the pocket of Talibans because they are corrupted and they would steal it. Number one, we should help people not to die. Number two, we should help the women, the movements of women in Kandahar, in Mazari Sharif, in other cities who refuse the iron rule of Talibans. We have a lot of ways to help them, concrete and moral. We knew how to do that, we, Americans and Europeans, in the time of the Cold War, at the time of the Soviet Union. We knew, without inflaming the whole world, how to encourage, how to help, how to do underground support. This is what we have to do with the people, especially the brave ladies who are opening the rule of Talibans. And number three, there is a man. I know him well. I knew the father well. And I know the son rather well. I, I know him since he is a little boy. Now he's a grown-up man. Ahmad Masood. Ahmad Masood who is the leader of the resistance in Panjshir, which is the only province who refused to submit to Talibans. I saw him among his commanders in Panjshir. I filmed him in a moving gathering where we had the old commanders of the father, Ahmad Shamasud, the legendary father, and the young commanders of the son, together, 
in a sort of amalgam, a mixing of the old commanders and the young. And I saw young Basud addressing this bunch of commanders. He was great. He was charismatic. He was respected by those proud uh, horsemen, cavaliers, as Joseph Kessel said. So this man has to be supported by many means. I cannot enter in details. I'm not an expert, but he has to be supported. He is, at this moment, that's my opinion, the only asset which, uh, not only the West, which the free people of Afghanistan have on the ground. The free people of Afghanistan, the women who want to remain free, the journalists who want to continue to do their job, they have one asset, Ahmad Masoud. We still can, in spite of our retreat, we still can try to repair what is repairable by helping this man. His father's death was a tragedy. I know. I know. I know. I, I knew him well. He came in Paris. I made him, I organized his visit in Paris in May 2001, few weeks before his death and few weeks before September 11. He was so melancholic. He was so sad. He had with him some informations which he wanted to give to French government. He was not properly received. He was not properly hosted by the authorities of my country because there was a blackmail of the Taliban in Kabul saying, if you receive Masoud, there will be retaliation on the ground against the NGO. I think, again, it was a bluff, but let's forget. So I have so sad souvenirs of the of the sadness, of the melancholy of Masoud, the last time I saw him in, um, in, uh, in Paris, it was in April. He was a great man, yeah. He was a great fighter. He was a poet. He was an intellectual. He loved books. He had his personal library following him from uh, <laughs> battlefield to battlefield. He was one of those men who wage war without liking it. More after this. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Uh, before we close, let's. Uh, I think our listeners would be interested to know about your very first endeavor in this area. So tell us how you wound up as a young man going to Bangladesh, which at the time was East Pakistan. And how did it become Bangladesh? And what was your role there? My role was very small, but uh, my endeavor and my enthusiasm was great. There was a slaughter in Bangladesh, mass crimes. Even today, we don't know if the Pakistani army uh, killed 500,000, 1 million, 2 million, maybe 3, maybe 4. We don't even know. And André Malraux made a call on French radio. He was very old. He was very nervous. He was a real old man. And he said, I make an appeal, I make a call to the constitution of an international brigade. As I did in Spain. He did that in Spain in 1936. He was at the head, he was the commander, the coronel of a fleet of planes enlisted in the international brigades doing a real good job in Spain. So at this moment he's 70 but 70 of this time, not like us. <laughs> it was a real 70. <laughs> he was really tired. And he launched his appeal. I heard that. I thought that it was so moving, so beautiful, and so true that what did I do? I took my phone. I called the secretary of the assistant of André Malraux. I said, I am in. Please take me. So my name was in the list. I was around all the pre and I went. The reality in the international brigade never existed. You were an army of one. André Malraux. <laughs> André Malraux was so tired 
that he did not come. Thanks God, he came after the war, but I was there. So being there, what can I do? I embedded myself in a group of freedom fighters, Mukti Bahini. I entered into Dhaka and I stayed there for a few months at the side of the first president of Bangladesh, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman. But this is important because it is the first time I was 21 or 22. I understood for the first time that the real affair of our generation, the real, the real um, tragedy, the real fight will be the opposition of the radical Islam and the enlightened Islam. Radical Islam was embodied by the Pakistani army. You know, Pakistan, the country of the pure. And Mujibur Rahman, president of Bangladesh, was an enlightened Muslim. He was Muslim, pious, uh, worshipping, and so on, but democrat, friend to human rights, friend to the Western world, deciding to support the women who had been raped during the war and to name them Birangona, which meant heroines of the nation. He was a very open-minded man. I was 20. I understood that this radical Islam versus enlightened Islam might be the great affair of my life and of our generation. And you turned out to be right. And, uh we can end on an upbeat note a little bit. Uh, arguably, the two most successful NGOs in the developing world took birth in Bangladesh. Father Lavid, who sadly died just a couple of years ago, was a good yeah. friend of mine, uh, founded BRAC, and Muhammad Yunus yeah. founded the Grameen Bank. And uh, when he got the uh, Nobel Prize for Economics, I think it's important to know that even though Bangladesh still has a deeply divided politics, there were three years in the early part of this century when they, in effect, had no government. It was totally paralyzed. And the economy still grew with no government at 6% a year I know, because of the microcredit work of Brack and Grameen and others. So this work is worth doing. And, and I'm so glad that you pointed out that you... If you go in this direction that you've lived your life, you can't keep score by whether you win 100% of the time and whether everything you live and dream can be realized more or less immediately. Correct. Well, first of all, I, I want to thank you for your life and thank you for being a public intellectual, which is another way of saying someone who is an active citizen we didn't get into the number of times when you could have been killed yourself. You were repeatedly in danger because you went to where people were hurting. And I think the whole world owes you a debt of gratitude. And I hope that someday, I know you said you didn't want it, but I would like it if France would acknowledge what you have done as a Frenchman to make the world a better place. And I'm glad you've got your energy, and I hope you never lose it. I remember somebody asked me once why I went to law school, and I said, I don't want to practice law, but I don't ever want to be forced to retire. I want to die with my boots on. And <laughs> I think that you have lived, and I hope will live decades more with your boots on, and we're all very grateful to you. 
Thank you. Same for you, Mr. President. Boots on. Boots on. This is the good end. Boots on for you and for me. Bless you. Thank you. Why Am I Telling You This is a production of iHeartRadio, the Clinton Foundation, and At Will Media. Our executive producers are Craig Manassian and Will Malnati. Our production team includes Jameson Katsufas, Tom Galton, Sarah Horowitz, and Jake Young, with production support from Liz Raftery and Josh Farnham. Original music by Watt White. Special thanks to John Sykes, John Davidson, Angel Urena, Corey Gansley, Kevin Thurm, Oscar Flores, and all our dedicated staff and partners at the Clinton Foundation. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Hemphill, Director of the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program, a one-of-a-kind partnership between the Presidential Centers of Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, and Lyndon Baines Johnson. President Clinton often says that the key to great leadership is in finding our common humanity, something that's needed now more than ever. That's why each year we bring together a dramatically diverse group of leaders, from doctors to teachers, elected officials to scientists, active military and veterans, all of whom have a passion for making the world a better place. We create a culture of collaboration that transcends partisan divides and ideological differences in service of a greater good. Today, presidential leadership scholars across the country are working together and actively applying the lessons learned in our program to help tackle today's most pressing challenges. You can learn more about this work and see how you can get involved by visiting www.clintonfoundation.org podcast. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today. 
by visiting musicgives.org.